Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Ben and I will be discussing goal number 14, life below water. As the United Nations states, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources. In this episode, we are going to share insights from our past conversations with certified B Corps committed to goal 14. You'll hear about sustainable fishing practices, utilizing kelp to sequester carbon from the oceans, beach cleanups, and how one brand is turning discarded fishing nets into skateboards. To get us started, you will hear from co-founder of Luke's Lobster, Ben Conniff, from episode 12. Luke's Lobster works with local fishermen and women to supply their restaurants around the globe with traceable, sustainable seafood. Here's Ben giving some deeper insight into the work that Luke's Lobster does. We look at our our core values in this business as as taste and transparency and purpose. And the first two really predominantly have to do with how we do business business. You know, taste is about making sure that we're always serving the best lobster in the world and other seafood now that we've begun to diversify. Um, Transparency is about those transparent dealings with fishermen and all of our suppliers and stakeholders, and then being transparent with our guests. Purpose really encompasses the importance of thinking beyond business and achieving a broader good that that goes outside the boundaries of just what your day-to-day is at work. And I think that's always been part of the soul of the company and part of the soul of our broader stakeholder community and it's what it's not the only thing but it's one of the things that makes everybody who works at Luke's passionate about getting up in the morning and coming here Um, not just that their day-to-day creates a benefit but that by supporting and helping to grow this company they're providing opportunity for that company to go out there and, and generate generate these these further external net positives. So if that's doing ocean cleanups and island cleanups, and yes, we do that in our in our urban centers where we have like, you know, active young bases of of liberal environmentalists, but we also go out to Creehaven Island and do it with fishermen because they are even more concerned with the the cleanliness of their ocean that they depend on every day as, you know, young big city, uh, liberal environmentalists in New York, Philly, or DC. So, you know, that's an activity that is really great because it, again, reinforces that sense of there being a broader community that touches the ocean and touches the ocean's bounty, no matter what your, what your background is or, or where you, where you sit in the world. But then there's a more scientific element to it, too. So working with the Island Institute and Bigelow Labs and, and Atlantic Sea Farms to help scientifically understand the positive effects that kelp farming has on the, uh, the surrounding area in terms of reducing ocean acidification. 
like we we like to get in the weeds on on the science of of that as well because what we're ultimately looking for is you know how can we find ultimate solutions that are going to help the fishermen make more money because now they're farming kelp at the same time as they're lobstering and they're going to make their own product more valuable because that lobster is going to be healthier because the kelp is there in the water column and they're going to make the ocean cleaner the ecosystem healthier and overall, you know, benefit the environment in a very real way. That's sort of that's sort of the dream. And you know, it's about understanding the science of it, and then being able to turn around and communicate what that means for benefiting all the stakeholders. Kelp farming helps to diversify marine-based jobs along the coast, especially those that have historically depended on lobstering. Kelp farming is also carbon negative and helps to mitigate the effects of ocean acidification. Here is Ben expanding on kelp farming. So in this instance, the kelp is pulling carbon out of the water. The excess carbon in our atmosphere is also creating an excess of carbon in the ocean. What that does is it makes the ocean more acidic. That ocean acidification in turn can have a lot of negative effects on the ecosystem, including on the strength of shells or bivalves specifically, and then some some lesser understood negative effects potentially on lobsters and, and their reproductive habits as well. All of the negative aspects of, of ocean acidification are not fully known, but we know there's a lot of them uh, and it is a big deal. So by planting kelp, you're able to actually fix some of that carbon, pull it out of the ocean, put it into the kelp. Um, so what we were able to do is work with our institute and these other partners to uh, help fund the scientific measurement devices that studied the effects on ocean acidification for that amount of kelp. And, and also looked at if you farmed mussels right next to that kelp, you know, what were the changes on the shell strength of mussels that were farmed next to kelp versus mussels that were elsewhere. Paving the way with local partnerships. We love to see that. Another initiative that Luke's has brought to the forefront is the Jonah Crab Fishery Improvement Project. We asked Ben to expand on the roots of that program for us. The premise of it was really Jonah Crab, a delicious crab that we serve in our crab rolls every day. It's always been kind of a, an incidental catch in a lobster trap. People didn't used to go fish for Jonah crab. It's sort of like it would show up in your lobster trap and you would either throw it back or if you thought you could sell it, you would keep it, you'd bring it home and, and maybe sell it. But there was never a big market for, for Jonah crab. It was very much an underutilized species. So there wasn't really a lot of concern with ever overfishing it because it wasn't, just wasn't that popular. Uh, then in, in the last decade, Jonah crab has started to be recognized for how amazing, delicious, sweet, tender, I could go on and on. Um, and it became a, you know, a more popular uh, species. And suddenly people started to wonder, you know, there are guys going out now that are going just specifically to fish for Jonah crab. Is it possible that we could overfish this species? And that became an immediate concern for us. So we worked with all these partners and with a, a large group of fishermen to take some of the amazing sustainability concepts that have worked in the lobster industry, 
maximum size, minimum size, throwing back egg-bearing females, and create rules for the Jonah crab fishery as well that everyone would agree to and that would uh, then be enforced. And by doing that, we were able to then have a much greater level of confidence that we wouldn't be out there overfishing Jonah crab and that population would thrive in the same way that the lobster population has in the last several decades. It is so cool to hear about how Luke's lobster is proactively working on sustainability measures for species before they become threatened. And to that end, Ben shares a cautionary tale as to why that is so important. Well, we serve serve shrimp. Um, We used to serve main shrimp. And the main shrimp fishery was, you know, completely overfished. And it's been shut down since 2013. So we've lost something that's a delicacy here. And, you know, now we have to buy it from a sustainable fishery in Quebec. You know, a few decades ago, Mainers saw sea urchins as pests and didn't know what to do with them and then then realized there was this great Japanese market for sea urchin and we fished the hell out of them and now they're gone. Sea urchin haven't recovered. So we've seen many times in the past, you know, people think this isn't a big deal and, and then they don't really realize it until it's too late. The fact that Ben could name two species right off the bat that humans overfished and caused their removal from local ecosystems is both appalling and disappointing. We talk a lot about B Corps on this podcast, and something that we have experienced and many of our guests on the show have expressed is really how amazing it is to partner with other B Corps. This is an example of how businesses can partner to work together towards supporting the same sustainable development goals. So in collaboration with other B Corps, I think is probably ranks among my top three reasons to be a B Corp. We actually certified because I sat down with a guy from United by Blue in 2017. Uh, They're an outdoorsy apparel company that cleans up a pound of trash from the oceans for every product that they sell. So they're super mission aligned with Luke's and a lot of the trash cleanups we've done, we've done together with them. We've also done partnerships. We had a special salad that we called the two flannel salad. Um, we got a bunch of flannels for the team from United by Blue. And then this is our winter warmer salad. And for every one of those sold, we committed to cleaning up a pound of trash. And we did those cleanups together. It was a lot of fun. But they're a great company. They're based in Philly. They created this concept called Blue Friday uh, that my wife and I have done for the last five years, probably where you, um, instead of going to shopping on Black Friday, you go out and you clean trash from your local river or lake or, or ocean. And uh, it's I, I proposed to my wife after cleaning trash uh, one of those days. So um, they're a great company. Really recommend checking them out. So we took Ben's advice and sat down with the founder of United by Blue, Brian Linton, in episode 18 from April of 2021. Here's what Brian shared with us about the beginnings of the brand. United by Blue was, like many businesses, inspired by by my childhood, by my upbringing. And I I grew up predominantly in Southeast Asia and Singapore. And, and while growing up, I was always fascinated with the aquatic world, um, mostly what lives within water, fish, namely. And uh, 
so I had 30 fish tanks in my bedroom growing up. I was a bona fide fish geek. And, uh, so I, I would, would raise fish. I would breed them. I would sell them. I was a, a little, little like fish, fish dealer, fish kingpin in, uh, in high school. And, uh, you know, I sold one fish when I was in, when I was like 18 for like a thousand dollars, a living fish. So I was really into the world of fish. And one thing you know about fish when you're, when you're raising these high value fish is the quality of the water is paramount. And if you don't have good quality water, specifically what the fish needs, um, you run the risk of them getting sick and dying. And so really it was always shocking to me when I would see how poorly oceans and waterways were treated in terms of quality of water. And when I, when I moved to the States and I saw that this was not just a third world problem that I was seeing, you know, say in, in Indonesia or the Philippines or Vietnam, but, but also something that I was seeing, you know, in New York City and Philadelphia, where I, you know, first came to and, and spent a lot of time, it was evident to me that, you know, this, this was a global issue that needed addressing. And so when I started my, my, my original business, sort of the predecessor of United by Blue, it was, it was to donate money to ocean and waterway conservation. And in doing so throughout college, I was doing that business and doing okay with that business, but I wasn't really having any impact. Uh, financial donations as a small business are notable and honorable, but they're not that impactful. The, the notion and the realization that I had when I, when I you know, had been doing this for a few years is that I really felt like I was going to be a lot more effective by creating an organization that was essentially doing the actual work that I envisioned happening with my donation. So basically cutting out the middleman from the doing of good. And so United by Blue, you know, and this is early on, like I started business in 2006 when social entrepreneurship was not even really a word, nor was businesses having much of a environmental or tangible impact aside from giving money away was a thing. So United by Blue started as sort of a, a first mover and vanguard in this space when it comes to associating every transaction with an environmental action. And, um, and so for 11 years, we've been picking up a pound of trash for every product that we sell. And um, that, that model has always been the case. It's always been what we've done, but it's evolved greatly in how we do it and the scale that we do it as well. So we're you know removing well over a million pounds of trash a year now. Um, through a variety of different means, all organized and created and hosted by us, though. We are the environmental organization as well as the brand. I really like how Brian took a passion he had for fish as a kid and found a way to turn that passion into the purpose of his business. And United by Blue does a lot more than just community cleanups. They are funding infrastructure to prevent plastic from entering the oceans in large-scale cleanups around the globe. As of today, United by Blue has removed over 4.3 million pounds of plastic from the ocean. International cleanups have been really accelerated by COVID because so many of our cleanups on an annual basis in the U.S. were large-scale community cleanups where, where we would get you know, 100, 200, 300 people out to a, a dirty river or beach and, and do a cleanup together. And you know, we'd make them fun events where people would come out, they would, you know, get to play games, they'd, you know, these, these big events that no longer happen. And so when, when COVID happened, we had to cancel dozens of cleanups that we had scheduled. We had the whole cleanup calendar for 2020 wiped out. And we were faced with 
a real challenge of, of meeting our mission. And we've always also had these larger scale cleanups that are less sensitive to COVID, which, you know, use fewer people, heavy machinery. We finance all of that. We bring in, you know, cranes and bulldozers to pull out big trash. Right now we're doing a cleanup in Miami and there was a, uh, like a sailboat washed up in the mangroves that we had to like get out of there. Cause it could, it, it, it was impacting the mangroves. And, and like, so we do like, that's not a community cleanup. We can't have a hundred people go try to do something like that. So th- those events have, have always been a part of who we are now on the international side of things. Yeah. Actually working with organizations overseas to finance both infrastructure whether or not that be like boons in like waterways or canals that that actually like will trap the trash from going out to sea and then collecting it before so basically taking ocean bound trash and financing the management of that so the jobs that are basically needed to service that on a regular basis is is a new thing that we're doing which is an economic benefit to areas that you know traditionally have more poverty and economic hardship than, than say North America, um, especially in say like the Philippines, Indonesia, we're doing a project in Bali right now, which is many, many people realize this now over the last few years, it's gotten a lot of publicity, but like Bali is the most beautiful, magical place, but it's also in Indonesia, which is just such a huge source of single use plastic waste that's getting into the ocean and all of it's coming through these waterways. And so addressing it in these concentrated sort of channels before it gets into the ocean is so critical because once it gets in the ocean, it is a lot harder, harder to pick up. But yeah, from a domestic standpoint, you know, we've, we've, we've done a lot with these large scale cleanups, which are paid activities where, you know, we're, we're financing the, the actual labor and the heavy machinery that's needed. And then internationally also financing it through ongoing maintenance programs of areas that need ongoing collection, disposal, maintenance of the, of, of the equipment and things like that. Bali is a beautiful place that's totally on my bucket list. It is interesting to hear that Indonesia has such a large single-use plastic pollution problem. When I do more research about hopefully someday traveling to Bali, I might look into how some of my time there could be dedicated to helping address that issue. Speaking of addressing plastic pollution problem in our waterways, another certified B Corp that is addressing ocean plastic is Boreo. Boreo takes discarded fishing nets and turns them into quality, durable products like skateboards. In partnership with Patagonia, they have been producing apparel from these discarded nets. And odds are, if you own a Patagonia trucker hat, the brim of that hat is made from recycled fishing nets. Here's co-founder Ben Kneppers from episode 16 in March of 2021, sharing how Boreo was started with life underwater in mind. And again and again, we kept seeing this problem plaguing it from all of our surf travels and spent time spent in coastal environments around the world was plastic pollution. And so we really just took it from a very academic approach to understand the problem and to our surprise, there was a lot of tangible solutions out there that could be done. And what three things that we kind of hooked on to uh, were one, infrastructure. Uh, 90% of the plastic in the ocean is coming from land-based sources. So by stopping at its source, looking upstream and putting the infrastructure in place where it should be in, in the first place and having a solution for it will eliminate that stuff from getting in, out there in the first place. Two, um, education. People to this day still don't really understand the consequences of discarding plastic pollution 
in many cases, um, environments have in historically had a cultural habit of discarding things uh, after they were used because they were traditionally made from natural fibers that would naturally biodegrade. And then suddenly, 30, 40 years ago, it all just suddenly turned into plastic where nobody told them this stuff doesn't break down. So that plastic you're leaving in, the, in your environment, it can last 500 years. And nobody really got them aware of that. And unfortunately, now it's catching up with them with decades and decades of this single-use plastic consumption being discarded in irresponsible ways. And then the third being behavior change. When people connect materials to value, they're no longer seen as a waste. So by letting people see that there's a valuable resource in what you're perceiving as a waste, they won't throw it away anymore. And so based on those things, we had this novel idea. What if we could take plastic pollution, upcycle it into something of high value, and by doing so, finance this effort we need to do to educate communities and implement infrastructure and also demonstrate there's value in this material so people no longer choose to discard it anymore. And that's when um, we had this very complementary background and skill set where Kevin, from his design background, came in and said, we can't just expect to collect any rubbish off the beach and make it into a consistent high quality product. We need to have a uniform source of material if we want to recycle it and make quality products out of it. We're not trying to make some cheap little paper clip or, or desk toy. You know, it, We want to make something of high value, upcycle it. And so that's where we took a step back and said, if this is all about plastic pollution, what actually makes the plastic that's ending up in our oceans? And to our amaze, and, and coincidentally enough, I was actually doing an environmental study for the wild-caught fishing industry in Chile at that time, where I was struck to find how significant fishing nets are. Fishing nets, um, numerically, are they've, the estimates have given it's at least 10% of the ocean's plastic pollution, but more staggering is the fact that it is four times more harmful to marine life than all other forms of plastic pollution in the ocean combined. Um, it's designed to trap and entangle marine life. That's the purpose of it. So when it's left in the ocean environment and it's made from a plastic, it can do that for up to 500 years. From that, we just simply took a, a, an approach to asking around, understanding my time in Chile, what the fishermen were doing. And to our amaze, there was really no solution for it. And at the same time, one fishing net is almost always made from one uniform type of plastic. So by putting all these things together, we kind of got this perfect coincidental, in some ways, combination of things happen where we got a really uniform source of plastic that didn't have a sound end-of-life solution that would be perfect fitting for high-value products because nuts are also made from high-value forms of plastic because they need to be really strong and durable. So that gave us an opportunity to make really high-value products. And then leaving, summarizing this whole thing, where we finally got to with, with the start of the business was, well, what should we make? And then that came back to our, our roots of being skaters and surfers. And we thought, well, the plastic cruiser skateboard craze was going off in, in Australia before we left. And we thought that's one kilo of plastic you can transform into something worth over well over a hundred dollars with, with wheels and trucks. And that thought, so that's where we kind of ran with it is we started, we started Boreo just on that novel idea, transform this once harmful pollution into a really positive solution that could then in, in effect by upcycling 
continue this chain reaction of all these other positive solutions along with it. Okay, so long quote there, but we felt it was so important to hear the full story of how Brayo came to be. Here is yet another example of how people are leveraging business as a force for good. Have we convinced you to love B Corps yet? Something else that we learned from Boreo that we thought was important, the value of looking upstream from the problem, in this case, ocean plastics, and learning to stop it at the source. We focus on, and this is, this is consistent with what we found in those early studies, is we focus on the stuff before it ends up in the ocean. When it gets lost at sea, you have so much more complications and so much more um, risk of that material being compromised on its quality, its performance, its consistency, its chance of it being contaminated by other foreign debris. And so the whole way we work is we work together with the fishermen. We educate them on the problem and that we have this really cool solution for them. And then by giving them that equipment and making their lives easier, because to be honest, their current options they don't like either is is to dump it they they burn it on the beaches or they have to pay a really expensive fee to send it off somewhere else and so by offering them a really sound end of life solution where we give them a compensation per per kilo that they provide us um, to make that value connection it, it's just become a win win win. Well, isn't that a full circle? Boreo is helping give fishermen and women an opportunity to properly dispose of their fishing nets to help better protect the oceans that are supplying them with their way of life. Similarly to the way Luke's Lobster is supporting the fishing community with income that they can count on in sustainable fishing practices. We love these innovative ways that businesses are addressing, cleaning up, and preserving the health of our oceans. And we all have a role to play. Currently, as a society, we are dumping an entire garbage truck full of plastic into the ocean every minute of every day. That's 18 billion pounds of plastic into our oceans each year. A helpful tip, try carrying a reusable set of cutlery with you and skip the single-use utensils. There is so much more that we all can be doing. Here's Ben with some ways you can get involved. Yeah, I mean, there's many levels to it. Um, there's the day-to-day level of just being conscious of what you consume and how you're managing it when it does meet its end of life. It is pretty unreal how much stuff that we still don't even have recycling solutions for that are consumed in the millions every day. So being aware of what you're consuming, focusing on staying away from single-use uh, plastic products, using your reusables whenever possible, knowing that every dollar is a vote. So when you're supporting, the market does respond and react. And that can be in many ways, the quickest way to take action is by industry saying the market's demanding it and therefore we need to support this. And then from a bigger approach is, I mean, policy is huge. That will just just set the tone for the entire industry uh, because industry can only go so far, especially with how much how cheap virgin plastic is and how easy it is to work with, um, that's not going away anytime soon. So by having us to be pushing our politicians to step up and, and make more effort to uh, be more responsible, 
While these three certified B Corps are all working towards the same goal of making our oceans healthier and providing sustainable solutions for the consumption of seafood, there is still so much work left to be done. Well, there's great, great things going on. I mean, in Chile, for example, they banned the plastic bag. They've um, had ex uh, extended producer responsibility act that now holds businesses accountable for every kilo of a, of a material they introduce into the economy. They're now held accountable for properly supporting the disposal of that same amount of material. So there's great things on that level. And then on a life mission level, you know, we also get the feedback, why are only fishing nets? Well, we never said we were going to solve the whole damn problem. We need more people out there creating more solutions. Again, like I said, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot that still can be done that is tangible. Yes, it is a complicated problem, and we're trying our best to be part of it with just fishing nets, but there's so much more that can be done. So if you really are passionate about this, there's plenty of work and, and even a, a life's work that you can do um, to take these issues on. Thank you for listening to this episode about Goal 14, Life Below Water. We focus the conversation around businesses that we know are going above and beyond for our oceans and waterways. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to these great organizations and resources where you can learn more. You can find the show notes in your podcast player. Until next time, be responsibly different. Show you too, like it's 1962. Got a bright future in the nick of time. Bright future in the nick of time. Got a bright future in the nick of time. Bright future in the nick. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine, and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com. <laughs>